happy Masturbation May! The holiday-turned month aims to celebrate and destigmatize sexual self-pleasure. As the Pleasure Chest shared on their blog, masturbation can be a natural, safe way to explore your body, feel pleasure, release built-up sexual tension, relieve stress, ease menstrual cramps, and protect against prostate cancer. To get busy with yourself in a fun new way, check out the wide range of masturbation sleeves, vibrators, dildos, and more at thepleasurechest.com. And don't forget to pick up some lubricant. Shop your heart and your boner out with always discreet free shipping at thepleasurechest.com today. What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. when you're in that kind of a situation, there's not a lot of privacy and, and not a lot of room, I think, for, for thinking about sex. But she did talk about what she missed once in a while. She would every now and then feel good enough to talk about wanting to get back home. And, you know, why did she want to get home? She wanted to get home so she could have her relationship with Kenny back. Elizabeth Ann Wood told me that she wishes she had more distinct memories of herself as a kid. She has snapshot memories, she said, most of which are pretty happy. I remember being shy, but I loved being around people that I knew. And a lot of her memories revolve around her mother, Judy. My mom was this really playful, open, not very structured parent. One of the things I loved about my mom was that I knew all the time that we could ask her anything at all. For instance, she remembers a time when she was about eight and her sister about six. And we were playing outside our apartment with a bunch of other kids, and some of them were older. One of them called my sister a peckerhead, and I had no idea what it meant. I remember running inside and my mother asked what was going on and I said, you know, so-and-so called Becky a peckerhead. What's a peckerhead? Judy sat the girls down on a bed and said, well, pecker is a slang term for penis. And peckerhead? It's just a crude thing that people say and you don't have to worry about it. But the way she handled it was just as this very unremarkable moment and it's one of the things I anchor my sense of being able to talk to her about anything. That ability carried over into Elizabeth's teens when she approached her mom with a request. I had a boyfriend. I was a senior in high school. We had gotten kind of serious, and it was just toward the end of the school year, I remember. We had gotten to a point in our relationship where we we wanted to have sex, and it would have been my first time having, like, penis-vagina intercourse kind of sex. We needed birth control, and I wanted to go on the pill. And I went to my mom, and I told her that this boyfriend and I wanted to have sex, and I wanted to go on 
on birth control. And she reacted really calmly. And she told me that she thought I was too young. You know, I was going to be going off to college and that she was probably kind of skeptical about the relationship lasting in general. But that if this was important to me and I wanted to do this, she would take me to Planned Parenthood. And she did. I remember her taking me. I remember her telling me what an exam would be like. There was no no fuss about it. Then there was the time when her mom expressed feelings about her boyfriend's choices. My boyfriend was coming to pick me up for a date. The last time he had dropped me off, he had come in and sat down for a little while and talked with my mom. And Hi. Hello there. A receipt from a motel we had been must have slipped out of his pocket because she had it. Judy presented the receipt to him at the door, advising... The next time you take my daughter to a motel, take her to a classier place, ah. <laughs> something like that. Because this had been one of these, like, you know, off a, off a highway exit kind of places. And she had this kind of amused but sort of strict tone to her voice that she couldn't really hold for very long. She ended up laughing about it. And he looked pale as a ghost at first and then realized she was joking with him. I first met Elizabeth and learned about her mom, Judy, at a Woodhull Freedom Foundation conference a few years ago, where Elizabeth read from her memoir, Bound, A Daughter, A Dom, and An End-of-Life Story, which chronicles her mother's last eight years of life. In the book, Elizabeth wrote about that exchange between her mom and her then-boyfriend. She wrote that her mom made the comment with a sharp-edged smile that clearly conveyed You have my permission, but also, you had better treat my daughter well. Looking back, Elizabeth understands what a gift it was to have that freedom around her sexuality. It continued to serve her well after her teens, too. So did you feel like your mom's openness was helpful to you when you were blossoming in your own sexuality? It really was, and not just in relationships with men, but later in college when I came out first as queer and as lesbian, and then sort of that developed into a more pansexual identity. My mom was really encouraging and supportive of all of that. Though she was heterosexual, she was really no fan of men for most of my growing up and and much of my adulthood. So she was actually very excited when I ended up orienting myself more toward relationships with women and then became disappointed again when men became a part of that story some years later. So yeah, I would say her openness had a lot to do with my feeling very safe and very secure in exploring all kinds of sexuality. Like there was never doubt in my mind that I would be accepted. And not only by her either, but by most of my family. Like most families though, not all aspects of their lives together went smoothly. Most of Judy's hardships revolved around her personal struggles with alcoholism. I don't think I knew that my mother was alcoholic until she started to get sober. I think it's very likely that I knew things at the time that I don't remember now that I knew. I remember her as just being very fun and playful and affectionate. But I have been told stories about how even in that early period of childhood, I was taking care of her in ways that I don't remember doing. For example, her father's mother tells a story that took place when Elizabeth's parents were going through a divorce. And we were asked where we wanted to live, and that I said that we wanted to live with our father, but that our mom needed us. 
So if that is a true story, then that would have happened when I was about seven. And that's something you wouldn't expect seven-year-olds necessarily to, to think of on their own. Later on, Judy shared openly, too, about her active drinking days. She told stories about how when we were little kids, we lived in this house that had a pool in the backyard. She would have her pitcher of vodka and tang while she was the parent responsible for watching us and our neighborhood friends play in the pool. She would talk about her awareness that she had driven during blackouts. She told a story about waking up in a closet one day because she had gotten lost at night on her way to the bathroom. But what I do remember really clearly is her sobriety. So she got sober around that time and stayed sober the whole rest of my life. But the early period of her sobriety, probably like the first five or 10 years, involved really intensive attendance of AA meetings and I experienced that as a lot of absence. But at the same time, as she was getting sober, it was clear that whether from alcoholism or from other just sort of internal psychological stuff that she dealt with, she was very disorganized. Her memory was a problem. And there were just constantly things that she seemed unable to do, whether it was paying bills on time or keeping things orderly at home. Now, mind you, she was also a solo parent raising two kids without solid income. So she was dealing with a lot of stress on top of everything else. So that is a part of the story. But what I remember is she needed a lot of support and care as I was growing up while she was sober. That involved a lot of my taking care of her emotionally as well as just kind of organizationally. And that characterized our relationship for the the rest of her life. In her late 50s, Judy experienced a profound sexual awakening. By then, Elizabeth had studied gender and sexuality in college and grad school. She's a sociologist by training. And she and her mom already had a relationship that involved talking about sex, both intellectually and about their personal experiences. As a skillful editor with journalism experience, Judy even helped edit Elizabeth's dissertation on the interaction and power in strip clubs. So given those open conversations related to sex, Elizabeth was not surprised when Judy talked to her about something spicy and intriguing she had learned about, thanks to a job interview. And it was an editorial gig. And it turned out that it was for an adult magazine. So she called me and she said, did you know that you can get paid to hurt men and you don't even have to have sex with them? And this was like this revelation to her. Judy had always had a kind of dislike for men, Elizabeth said, thanks to some pretty negative relationships. She hadn't had a really good one up until this point. So when Judy spotted a dominatrix ad, she apparently had to edit some during the interview as like a test. She was fascinated by the whole concept. So I I gave her a copy of Jay Weissman's book, SM 101, for Christmas that year. She sat it on a shelf, didn't seem to have anything come of it for a few years or so. And then one day she called again and she said, 
that she was having trouble with her profile on alt.com. Did I know alt.com? And I thought, I know alt.com. Back then, alt.com was probably the biggest online place for matchmaking for BDSM and kink fans. And she was having trouble because she didn't like all the penis pictures she was getting from men. So we made some adjustments to her profile. And that is how I became aware that she was actively dating and seeing men. I would go visit her and she would have post-it notes all over her computer to try to keep track of different usernames and then their actual names if she had seen them and then what they liked. Because like I said, she had a really poor memory and she wasn't good at organization. So I think she was really nervous about confusing people. And so she, she would just have all these post-it notes around and, and it, was, it was just very funny. So that is how Elizabeth came to realize that Judy was enjoying steamy adventures and a whole sexual awakening, which led to what Elizabeth sees as her mom's best period of life. You know, when she discovered that there were ways to interact sexually with men and be in control and only do the things you really liked, and that she was sought out, it was amazing. I think it must have been incredibly healing for her. It really gave her a sense of power and control that I don't think I had seen her have in pretty much any area of her life. So that she could have it that way with men in this sexual context. It did in some ways kind of bleed out into the rest of her life. I think it made her a stronger, happier person. That metamorphosis was very evident in Judy's living space, too. She lived in a one-bedroom apartment in Philadelphia with high ceilings and big windows. It was a really nice space in a kind of rundown building. But so you would walk into her apartment, and because she was the kind of person she was, it wasn't as if she had, like, one playroom or that her bedroom was designated for where sex and all its related activities would occur. Evidence of it was everywhere in her apartment. If you were to have walked into her living room and taken a seat, you'd very likely have seen handcuffs that were over her closet door, you know, from an over-the-door restraint system. You would possibly encounter a dildo or a butt plug on the windowsill or on the coffee table. There was also a St. Andrew's cross. In Bound, Elizabeth described it as bondage gear that bore witness to her mother's power, strength, and willingness to defy convention. It was basically in the shape of a very tall letter X. And so you could imagine a person being attached to it with their arms up above their head, spread out, and their legs spread out, you know, so they look like a big X. It had eye bolts along the arm and leg pieces where you could attach cuffs, or in her case, often she used scarves because they were easier for her to work with. But basically, it's a very large device to which you attach somebody so you can do whatever you want to them. You can whip them or cane them. You can tickle them. You can torture them. You can do whatever it is that you and they have agreed to. And she was really creative in her sessions. I know BDSM in general can be, but her kind of writer spirit, I really felt that when you were talking about the sessions she would craft. Yeah, a lot of her relationships were kind of long distance with people that she would see maybe for a weekend or for an overnight, but they didn't live right there. So a lot of their interactions went on through email. And my mother loved to write. 
one of the things she told me that she always required to test how serious somebody was about spending time with her was that she would make them memorize a poem. So she'd assign them a poem and they had to memorize it. And when they would meet for the first time, they had to recite the poem. I think part of that was a challenge so that if they messed up, she could punish them. But it was also a way of saying, this is, you know, this is part of who I am. I am a literary person. These things matter to me. But she would also develop these really elaborate scenes with them through email interaction. There was a particular partner she had who was from England, and he was a pilot, and he would fly over periodically here a couple times a year. But he had really elaborate fantasies about hospital scenes and about prison scenes, and they would develop these over many email exchanges and then essentially act them out. He would sometimes send her devices she needed or or equipment she needed to carry out the scene. Not long before things changed dramatically in virtually always for Judy, she met Kenny, the man who bought her the cross and other kink supplies, a dog cage, a foxtail butt plug, a sensory deprivation suit. Before Elizabeth even met Kenny, she knew he was madly in love with her mom. This was a very special partner to her. He was part of her life right through the end of her life. And I really don't know how we would have managed the last eight months of her life without him. He was incredibly special and loved her enormously. And and she felt very loving toward him, too. The diagnosis that would lead to Judy's death wasn't her first brush with cancer. A few years before her sexual awakening, she was diagnosed with kidney cancer. And BDSM seemed to help her navigate that. That is a long story that I'll make very short by saying she ended up on dialysis. And the dialysis process is really draining to people. But there's a kind of dialysis that they switched her to, which you do at home overnight. And it doesn't involve draining the blood out of your body and filtering it. And it's a much gentler process. It doesn't sap your energy like hemodialysis does. So that was ultimately the kind of dialysis she did. And I really believe that the BDSM she engaged in allowed her to be more open to transformation to her body, like the implanting of this tube, partly because the kink community is often much more body accepting. There's a piece of kink that is almost like a, a cyborg, android kind of thing, like where people are just much more inclined to modify their bodies. And modifying the body allows an openness to other kinds of experiences. So I think kink was part of why she could accept that more readily than maybe some people would have been able to. Also, that dialysis process changed her relationship to her body and gave her a lot more control over it. She actually had a period of years where she felt much healthier than she had. Her diabetes cleared up and lots of things got better for her for a few years, which was an enormous blessing. That period of her life, that three years, was her most sexually active, her most powerful feeling. And oddly, it happened in conjunction with this kidney cancer and the dialysis she was doing. But then, Judy was diagnosed with cancer again. We don't know the original site. It was a really aggressive small cell cancer, which by the time it was diagnosed had spread to her liver, her lungs, her bones, and had a really poor prognosis. The goal of treatment was not to cure the cancer, but 
to improve Judy's quality of life for whatever time she had left. Best case scenario, about two years. And that changed everything. Elizabeth gradually took on the role of caretaker for her mom. At the time of Judy's diagnosis, Elizabeth was a college professor. And early April is about a month before the end of classes. So for that month, I was back and forth to Philadelphia as often as I could be. My aunt was doing a portion of the caregiving. Kenny was doing some as well. But those were also really uncertain uncertain days in terms of getting the chemo started and, and figuring out whether she was going to be at home or in the hospital and, and how all that was going to go. And that was really hard. I was really, really lucky to have supportive colleagues who helped cover classes when I needed to be out. My students were really understanding. My family was obviously also really pulling together and and chipping in. So my sister was helping as she could from farther away. Then when the semester ended, I shifted to a schedule where I was really with her during the week and my aunt would take over Friday as a transition while Kenny arrived on the weekend and then my aunt would come back on Monday as a transition while I'd be getting there. And then I would be there for the the remainder of the week. And that was what we did pretty much for what turned out to be the last eight months of her life. So caregiving really became central to my life. During those months, Judy's focus understandably shifted from things like sex to things like dealing with her nausea and pain. She only returned home once during those eight months, spending most of her remaining days in the hospital or rehab facilities. And when you're in that kind of a situation, there's not a lot of privacy and and not a lot of room, I think, for, for thinking about sex. But she did talk about what she missed once in a while. She would every now and then feel good enough to talk about wanting to get back home. And, you know, why did she want to get home? She wanted to get home so she could have her relationship with Kenny back, you know, travel back to Brooklyn, where he lived, you know, back and forth. But not feeling well and lacking privacy were not the only factors keeping Judy from talking about sexuality. I think a big reason was that we don't as a society and our healthcare institutions don't make sex part of a person's life, don't, don't acknowledge that sex is part of a person's life, unless the medical issue is specifically sexual. So if you're in the hospital and you have cancer, it's unlikely that doctors or nurses or pharmacists or whoever's working with you are going to ask you questions about like, well, how is this affecting your sexuality and, and what could be better or, or how could we help in that way? Had those conversations happened, Elizabeth said, they might have had a profoundly positive impact. Because sexual pleasure and sexual connection are integral to our lives. They can also be tools for managing pain, for managing illness, for making us feel more connected to people, for giving us hope. There are people trained in sexual health, but they tend to be isolated in that silo of sexual health care. Ordinary practitioners in other specialties, oncology, pain management, nephrology, all those specializations, they are not trained to even think about how sex might be part of the story. And so it just isn't mentioned. And I think when when an institution or a group of people or a set of practices makes something seem irrelevant or invisible, we start to see it that way ourselves. 
Absolutely. I found it so endearing that your mom at one point, I believe it was a rectal tube was being placed and she called it a butt plug. Yes. <laughs> she could not call it anything other than a butt plug. Now, she was a little delusional at the time, too, from a shingles infection and from antibiotics and from, from chemo and all of that. But she just could not think of it as anything other than a butt plug. And she called it a butt plug every single time that it needed to be called anything at all. And I never once saw a doctor or a nurse or anybody bat an eye about it as if they weren't even going to acknowledge that that was what had been said. Or maybe they didn't have a frame of reference for that phrase. Maybe that didn't mean anything to them. And that story, like a story later about catheterization, is a really good example of where not only is sex not acknowledged, but really in many ways consent isn't handled well. And there's little discussion, if any, about past sexual history or trauma that could make particular medical care challenging. So she had to have this rectal tube because she was having a lot of diarrhea because of an infection. And that doesn't sound sexy and nobody's going to be likely to look at that and say, oh, hmm, how is sex part of this story? But the fact is, if you're inserting a tube into somebody's body, a rectal tube or a catheter, you're dealing with parts of the body that are often parts of sexual activity, may have been parts of the body that experienced trauma. And it would be very helpful if we asked about that before going ahead and shoving another tube in. So the fact that that was missing really made me think a lot about how doctors and nurses could stand to learn a lot from sexuality educators about talking about sex, but really also just about basic consent practices. Because the kind of consent that you are asked to give in a hospital is pretty meaningless. You're there, you're sick, you need the treatment. What are you going to say? But that doesn't mean the interaction should be treated as if it's meaningless. The interaction should be treated with a lot more thought and care to make the consent much more meaningful and so that people really know much more clearly what they are consenting to. Mm, yes, so well said. It seemed to me like if something like butt plug is part of your language, to ignore it... You know, I just kept wishing that there was, like you said, a sexual health professional who was also a nurse who was in the room who could banter with her or maybe like use more sexy terms because this could have also been at times maybe a coping thing. You know, there's another story in the book. We were talking with a palliative care pharmacist when there was a chance that she might actually go home. The pharmacist was talking about non-pharmaceutical pain management tools that she might use. So she went through a list of things like massage and, and Reiki and, and other kinds of stuff. And then she said, and some people like to use a TENS unit. TENS stands for transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation. A TENS unit basically involves wires that attach to a couple of pads that you can put on your body and a little current goes through them, through the body. And it stimulates the nerves, and it can be used pretty successfully to combat nerve pain and other kinds of pain. But it's also often used in kink play. She had one for kink play, and when the pharmacist said, you know, in a TENS unit, and she said, what's that? And she looked genuinely confused. I felt really surprised. Then the pharmacist started describing it, and I saw this little mischievous look on my mother's face, like, oh, she realized what it was. And she actually said, oh, I have one of those, but I don't think mine has those kinds of pads you're talking about. Because, of course, hers had all kinds of like nipple clamps and stuff like that. But the pharmacist just skipped right over it, didn't ask her what she used hers for. 
And I didn't raise it in the moment, though I, I did have a glimmer of thinking about it. But I knew my mom was concerned about being judged harshly for unconventional practices. So I didn't bring it up since she didn't push it further. And I kind of wish I had. I kind of wonder what that interaction would have been like. Is this palliative care pharmacist was this really vibrant young woman who I think would have been very open-minded. And I've always thought of that as a missed opportunity. Amid all of the hardships during that time, both Judy and Elizabeth were able to have moments of pleasure, if not sex-related. I found myself savoring those moments while reading about them, too. This snippet, for example. When I arrive, I make a stop at the coffee shop for one of their ultra-gooey cinnamon rolls and a cup of mocha for mom. I get a latte for myself. The barista knows me by now. She asks about mom and makes a double heart in her chocolate sauce on the whipped cream for her. And there were these moments of like delight. I mean, sometimes coffee is more like, you know, fuel, but (laughs) were you able to find pleasure? Anything you'd like to share around those topics? I'd I'd love to hear. Yeah, sure. Uh, Well, for one thing, I think many caregivers will relate to the idea that caregiving is exhausting and that often sexual pleasure probably just disappears for a period of time. It's hard to have any kind of real energy for yourself. But with my mom in particular, I did definitely experience some pleasure around food like that. Food became an issue for her in that she was having a hard time eating very much, partly because pain medicine was making her very sleepy a lot of the time. But she loved, my mother loved really sweet, sticky, gooey treats. And because at this point in her life and in this point in her illness, all we were really concerned about was getting calories into her. Diet restrictions kind of went out the window. So I would often take great pleasure in going to get her a mocha latte kind of drink with a really gooey cinnamon roll. And I would get a latte for myself and I'd bring it up to her and help her eat bits of it and and just enjoy that connection. I also, I have a very sweet picture of her at a sandwich shop across the street from the hospital. At one point when she was well enough to be taken out in a wheelchair, I took her over to this sandwich shop, which I knew she really liked. And she got this milkshake and the milkshakes come with straws that have a little cookie around the straw, a little cookie with a hole in it. And she just has this look of real delight, like childlike delight on her face about this big chocolate milkshake with this cookie on the straw. And I love that picture because I don't think she was getting much pleasure in any way at that point in her life. To be able to be part of that and enjoy that kind of pleasure with her was a really sweet moment. Near the end of Bound, Elizabeth wrote that She doesn't know when she first began to think of her mother as someone who was dying, rather than someone who was struggling to live. But as death grew near, Judy ate less and slept more. And when the actual moment of her passing arrived, a very appropriate song was playing, Simon and Garfunkel's American Tune. And that recording is a recording that was really special to me because my mother had always loved this album and we had played it a lot at home. So it was very familiar music and and 
I love many of their songs. That particular song, and the fact that it was playing when she died, felt, for some reason, incredibly meaningful. It was it was perfectly situated. It has lyrics in it that just pulled together so many of the themes I felt like were important in my mother's life. It refers to feeling confused and battered, and, and it refers to shattered dreams, and it refers to feeling mistreated. And I know she had spent a lot of her life feeling like nothing had ever really gone her way. It had not gone the way it was supposed to. But there's also this verse, it says something, I dreamed I was dying, and I dreamed that my soul rose unexpectedly, and it was looking back down at me and a smile. And there was this very kind of sweet feeling of kindness and self-love that I hoped she felt. It talks about acceptance, and it talks about pain, and it just really drew all of these themes together in a very familiar voice with a really kind of poignant and comforting sound. It was actually playing the moment she died, and I let the song finish, and my friend Ricky was in the room, and I looked at her and I asked her to put it on repeat, and I let it play through one more time. I'd been sitting on my mother's bed just holding her hand and kind of rubbing her head as she was dying, and I continued to do that through another entire iteration of the song before I really kind of acknowledged that she was gone had happened. So I, I will always hear that song with her in mind, I think. Since Judy's death, Elizabeth has found comfort in photos of her mom, including one in particular. It was taken when her mom was healthy around 2008, when she visited Elizabeth in New York. Elizabeth was having this huge party for a website she and a friend had launched called Sex in the Public Square. The two of us are standing together. I have a t-shirt on that says, this is what a feminist looks like. And she's smiling and laughing and I'm smiling and laughing. That picture makes me feel very close to her because she was just so celebratory of me and what I was doing. But then later I got to be celebratory of her and what she was doing. And that picture to me just sort of captures all of that. Elizabeth found another photo she loves of her mom while going through her things. I had to go through her computer because we were going to give her computer to our grandson. So I spent a few nights in December that year just going through and looking at her files. And I saw a lot of pictures that she had probably shared with men on her dating sites. But some of them were just really, really sweet and captured her spirit. There's one of her standing in a little red negligee. And she's kind of a plump, short woman with dyed hair. And, and she looks older, you know? She's, she was in her 60s at the time. And she's had kind of a rough life, and she kind of looks like it. But she's got this grit on her face, and she's got this little flogger with a little heart at the end. And she's got it kind of up to her lips, and it's got this very mischievous, almost elf-like look about it. And I love that picture. I think that really captures her in a particular way. Another part of Judy's spirit was captured in a photo that shows her wearing an orange t-shirt from a donut shop in Michigan called Cops and Donuts. The shirt reads, Cuffed and Stuffed. And it had these handcuffs on it, and it just seemed like it was made for somebody in kink. And she was in the hospital, and she was sitting, and 
she has a, a scarf around her head, but it's all kind of lopsided and she's not got very much hair and she looks kind of beat up and bruised from all the IVs. And she's got an e-cig on a chain around her neck and she's got this grabber, which is a tool that the occupational therapy folks give you to help you pick up socks off the floor when you can't bend over, you know, that kind of thing. And she's got that and she's raised it kind of like a rifle and she's pointing it at me. I'm taking a picture of her so you can't see me. I swear it looks like she's in some kind of prison gang or something. (laughs) And cute. You're such a beautiful writer. And I think one of my favorite scenes, your writing just moved me so much and, and put tears in my eyes, was when you were talking about the scattering of her cremains. Oh, yeah. The chapter in Bound is called In Which the Disorganized Dom Scatters Herself. That was very interesting to me because I had never had a relationship with anybody's remains before. Elizabeth's friend Ricky and her husband had arranged for the cremation, and they were keeping Judy's ashes in a box in their house. A week or two after Judy passed, Elizabeth went to their place to pick them up. And I really didn't know what it was going to feel like. I had a lot of trepidation about what it was going to feel like to encounter this box. As they led her to the study where the box sat on a shelf, Elizabeth wrote, she was caught off guard by the image of her mother's remains, struggling to breathe. She shook the image off, pulled the cremains from the shelf, and her feelings completely shifted. I had this immediately warm feeling toward them. They were in this kind of cream-colored paper-covered box flecked with little pink confetti-looking stuff. And I sat on a a chair with them for a little while, and I I just felt connected to them, a a warm kind of feeling. And I remember driving back to New York with them. I sat her on the front seat. I talked with her half the drive home, I think. I found her place in our apartment. And I felt very anxious leaving her alone at home. (laughs) It was very funny. You know, it, it was a very personal relationship that I felt. So scattering her was actually really hard for me to do. There was a sense of wanting to create a ritual around this and do this. About six months after she died, we had a a memorial at a park in Philadelphia. Some of her friends, my sister and her family, were all there. The day before, a smaller group of loved ones scattered Judy's ashes in a private ceremony. And we had had all kinds of discussion, my sister and I, back and forth about how to do this, because this was in a public park. And it was there because we had donated a tree and a bench to the park as a memorial to my mom. And we had decided ultimately we would scatter some of her ashes in a little circle around the tree, and then we would take the rest of them over to this waterway where there was a little waterfall, and we would let the rest of them go into the water. So that's what we were going to do. That was the plan. And planning is something that Elizabeth and her sister do very well. As Elizabeth put it, they are planning kinds of people. My mother was very much not a planner and did not really love it when other people planned out her life for her. And I won't reveal the end of the story because I think it's funny and I think it's worth reading. But I will say, if you opt for a biodegradable urn, then you probably should not do scattering on a rainy day. Nowadays, 
Elizabeth still feels a connection to Judy, not unlike the relationship she felt with her ashes. It's interesting because I'm not a particularly spiritual person, but I do feel like I feel her around me quite a bit. I feel a closeness to her that is very much like the closeness I felt when she was alive. And in some ways, it's a much simpler closeness, in some ways a happier closeness than some of the times when we had challenges in our relationship. Because it's easy now to just basically feel the positive feelings toward her. So I talk to her every now and then. I feel particularly close to her when I'm working on a writing project. I've been working on another book project and I've, I've felt like I could share that with her. And I feel like she's just part of the universe now. So whatever there is of her that was energy is still there. It's, it's just free floating. And, uh, and I still feel connected to it. Elizabeth's book, Bound, A Daughter, A Dom, and An End-of-Life Story is available most anywhere books are sold, in ebook, print, and audio formats. As an author myself, I know what it means when folks purchase and read what you've written. You've put in all this hard work and it just, it means a lot. But there's a deeper reason Elizabeth hopes you'll read Bound, too. I think when we share stories about sex and death, we are more likely to have the kinds of lives that we want to have for the length of time we can have them. And I don't think we get a lot of practice at sharing those stories. So I think this is one way to begin by encountering my story and my mom's story and then sharing that story with other people as a leader, perhaps to sharing some of your own stories and to talking about the kinds of concerns you have around aging or illness and your sexuality and the kind of death that you want to avoid or the kind of death you want to have given that we are all going to die and how you want to prepare for that. Because we can't live our fullest lives, I don't think, without acknowledging those things. Learn more about all of Elizabeth's work at elizabethannwood.com and follow her on Instagram at elizabeth.ann.com. Dot wood. If you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would so appreciate a rating and review, and if you'd tell your friends about it. To support the show and get fun extras, including bonus clips from interviews, join my community at patreon.com slash girlboner. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>